Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Global News reported August the 12th, Nova Scotia Mountie faces questions over redacted warrants in mass killing case. There's the story of a serial and brutal rapist in Quebec whose victims were between the ages of 14 and 28, released after 12 years in prison and has just been arrested and charged in the kidnapping of 16-year-old Montreal girl. Luckily for her, she was able to get away from him. And uh, the Crown, by the way, had been attempting to have this individual declared a dangerous offender, but they failed. And we also have the federal government seeking to contract with a private company for a buyback program of firearms recently declared prohibited. Scott Newark is former prosecutor, Alberta prosecutor, senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety, now SFU, Simon Fraser University professor. His terrorism risk and security studies program includes, as students, some of Canada's most senior police officials. Mr. Newark, good to talk to you. Good talking with you. So talking to Gord Bibby is uh, was hard. Uh, yeah. I know the family. And nobody had informed him. I, when I called him this morning, he was first he found out that this individual had been had been uh, wow. captured, who had had actually surrendered. So nobody had bothered to call the family wow. at all. Part of the course. Yeah, that's. I mean, look, it, these are difficult circumstances, without question. When a Canadian gets abducted and is being held overseas, because obviously we don't want to do anything that's going to encourage this to happen in the future. But um, to your point. Among the things that can be done is that you demonstrate to the family that this is a priority and you keep in touch with them and you keep them informed as best you can. You let them know what it is that you're trying to do, things like that. And to find out that, you know, after this happened uh, a couple of days ago, and it was reported in the media, for heaven's sake. That's right. That the That's federal right. government, you know, it wasn't enough of a priority for them for somebody to even pick up the telephone. Nope. Very Scott, you know, you know, at the time that uh, Robert Hall and John Risdell were being held and being threatened with beheading, uh, the I know the Hall family was getting phone calls and uh, directives from Ottawa, from the Trudeau government, saying you are you are not to speak with media, Correct. you are not to to share this information. They finally did. They finally went on the air, and uh, they spent a lot of time on air with me, her, um, Mr. Hall's sister, uh, Bunnies, who died um, not long after he did. Uh, she was just a tiger about getting yes. information. In fact, when she was very ill, she flew to Ottawa and more than less forced Justin Trudeau to meet with her because they had, they, the government had shown no interest. And here they are again. It, that when, when this sort of thing happens, when this guy is actually captured, one of the things you do is you call the family and say, hey, we have some news for you. And maybe give them some information about what's going on because yeah. it sounds like this is, uh, there's a bit of a backroom kind of a, uh, you know, local deal that may have happened. Uh, the Abu Sayyaf is a just a really, really nasty group. They were active uh, even before 9-11. They were an al-Qaeda uh, supporter and just incredibly violent. And um, after uh, uh, President Duarte took over, he actually negotiated some kind of, you know, we don't get all the details, but he negotiated some kind of a sort of a peace arrangement or settlement with the Islamists, it's in the southern part of the Philippines and the islands, and it turns out that after this guy, from what the media reports are, I don't have any direct contacts, but from what the media reports are, this guy was injured and he was, you know, looking for some kind of help, and so he actually went to one of the Islamist leaders 
who'd been part of the surrender deal. That's right. And he went to him, and then somehow he ends up in government custody. Yeah, because this so, other... this other you, know, you never know exactly what's going on, but at the very least, the family obviously still has questions, and you think the government could have enough sort of respect and uh, priority to pick up the telephone and talk to them. Yeah, and this other, um, I don't know, I guess it was a terror group leader, to whom the first guy, who was now being held surrendered, turned, actually turned him over to the government. Yes, that's what I'm getting at, yes. Said, hey, I don't want you. And I suspect that that's probably something that's going on. I mean, we may never know about it. The uh, The government itself may never know about it, but obviously the family has some questions. And just having pub- our public officials show them the respect to, you know, yeah. take their questions and make it a priority to call them, that's something that helps people deal with the trauma they're going through. Doesn't that tell you what they think of people who are in terrible distress? Couldn't care Unfortunately, um, yeah, I think they probably figure that it's out of the news by now so they don't have to be concerned about well, it. Well, it's not out of the news. Well, from their perspective, it is. From their perspective, it is. You're right. Anymore. From their perspective, it is. Now, you uh, fill us in, please, because you're very uh, aware of police issues, having been a former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, story is. Nova Scotia Mountie faces questions over redacted warrants and mass killing case. That's the Nova Scotia case. Now, if I understand things correctly, and according to the news story, and I knew this before, once a warrant is served, it has to be public, doesn't it? There are some exceptions to that. Um, there, there are legal provisions that um, the, the Crown and, you know, the police who are the almost always the people who are the ones swearing the affidavits to get the warrants or production orders. Um, that can restrict any public access to it because rev- release of the information arguably could compromise ongoing investigations or related investigations. But as a general principle, you're right that when those warrants are executed, they are viewed as being you know, um, public actions, which they are, taken by public officials, who they are, and that the public that they serve has a right to that information. And so what's happened in... Nova Scotia, and you recall we talked about this uh, a little while ago with uh, Jeff Manison, that for, uh, you know, uh, literally months the federal government and the Nova Scotia government had been resisting holding a public inquiry into what had actually taken place here, not only about the RCMP's response to the shooting events, but also about any relationships, why they had never acted in the past about reports about him, including uh, illegal gun possession. And to see... Public officials now, and that's what the, uh, the the latest story is, is that they are still trying to keep those warrants, the public information, in other words, the justification of why they sought these orders which were granted, uh, they're still trying to keep it secret, and to the point that literally the media made an application, you know, got their own counsel and went in, and that's what they're arguing right now. And it reminds me of what Jeff actually pointed out when we were discussing this, that, that this is the reason why... There was calls for a public inquiry. These are legitimate public questions. And I, I must admit, and this is true, I think, in a lot of things you and I talk about, including some of the cases uh, from today, these kinds of cases raise systemic issues because our criminal justice system is not the private preserve of lawyers, prosecutors, and judges. Okay? It belongs to the people. It's a public system with a public purpose, public officials, that are supposed to be accountable to the public itself. And when you start to see this, you know, siloed, 
approach to covering up what's actually going on. It's a cause for concern. And so I think people are asking the right questions. I mentioned this when we talked about it a while ago about this case. I'm afraid, and I really do regret saying this, I've got a bad feeling about this case and what we're going to find out about what really happened. You know, when you were just talking about uh, what, what people feel, what, what they experience, how they see the system being run when it becomes yeah. the private preserve of three or four different types of groups, right? Uh, it reminded me, and you were, I think you might have been part of the conversation. It was the early 90s, and we were speaking with the Attorney General for the state of Washington. And, uh, and we were talking about justice issues that were huge at the time, and we brought him in for a particular story that was going on there. And he said... If you have a justice system that is not responsive to the people and doesn't have the trust of the people, then you don't have a justice yes, system. I do, I do recall that, yes. Yeah. And, and actually, some so of that right. discussion led to him talking about a particular uh, technique of surveillance, electronic monitoring, that I subsequently used, which is an important part, and if I may say, is a really important part of um, uh, the role that the media, and in particular guys like you, play, because you not only give the people you know, who are directly involved, unfortunately all too often victims, a voice to be able to express their concerns, but you also give advocates like me and others an opportunity to point out the specifics of what's wrong and to suggest solutions. And that's critically important in this because we do not want to lose our criminal justice system, which, by the way, is not something that was invented by the Federal Department of Justice, you know, two years ago. It's been with us for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's right. Yeah. And, Scott, I've spent a lot of time, as you know, in the company of uh, families of murder victims, uh, parents of kids who have been murdered. I've spent time with them in the studio. I've spent time with them at my home and at their homes. And, and it is always so terribly distressing when they have questions that I know they should have the answers to, when they ask questions that they should have been informed about yeah. and they have no idea, and then it's my job, my responsibility as a human being, more than a member of the of the you know the media, to provide them with information that they never should never should have to wait to get from me. It's awful. What you what you also provide, though, Roy, and in many different forms, including in uh, getting people like me to come on your show is when you're dealing with something as complex as our justice system, if you want to get the right answers, you got to ask the right questions. Yeah. Well, let me take a break here. And I've always said to you that what I know about the justice system of Canada, I've learned from you. I've been, a, I've been your student for 30 years. You're not bad. <laughs> you're not great, but you're not bad. <laughs> Well, we're good friends. Um, I stopped off to visit Scott when I was on my way to Quebec to visit my family during my vacation. You have this individual, Michel Cox, from Montreal, and he's the bus stop rapist, and he's found guilty of uh, violently raping eight young women. Um, and, and the Crown tries for dangerous offender status, which would have kept him in prison potentially forever, but no. No, the... Uh, the judge, I think the judge or the or, or uh, the judge said, no, yeah, I know he's got redeeming qualities. Well, he's let out, and now he's been charged with uh, abducting a 16-year-old from a from a bus stop, and she was lucky enough to get away. We would have had another terrible incident. As it is, she's probably affected for life. What's going on? Well, um, I agree with you. First of all, that the uh, the good news about the story is that this uh, brave young girl got away. Yes, uh, But it, this is a classic example of how you need to drill down into the details 
figure out exactly what's going on and why this guy was on the street in the first place. Because it turned out, as you mentioned, he was convicted, I believe it was back in 2005, uh, to a, a whole series of uh, eight rapes committed between 2002 and 2004. And um, he was convicted of the, uh, the rapes. The judge sentenced him to 21 years in jail, okay, uh, which is a pretty hefty sentence. And you're right that the judge turned down the Crown's request for a dangerous offender designation, which, of course, the justice system always explains means that, you know, the people are in jail forever. Well, actually, uh, that's not true. If you're declared a dangerous offender, it's an indefinite sentence. But guess what? They're eligible for parole after seven years. Okay? So instead, she sentences him. She uses a tool that is actually available. It's one of the ones I was involved in years ago at the uh, police association getting changed. Normally, people are eligible for parole, not entitled to, but eligible for parole after only one-third of their sentence. But because of a change that we got made, the judges can now delay it to one-half, and that's what she did with this guy. But what she also did was and she didn't give him a dangerous offender designation, but she gave him what is called a long-term offender designation, which was also a change that was made so that people who were you know, more dangerous and that were held for their full sentence, they would be on these, these special supervised conditions. But again, when you drill down into it, um, well, actually, even though he got the sentence that he did and he was designated a long-term offender, he's still eligible for parole which is what he ultimately at some point got. Yeah. When you do the math, I refer to it as corrections math. So it means he was either still out on that or that the long-term offender supervision that he was out on obviously didn't uh, include appropriate conditions in terms of you know curfews and electronic monitoring and where he was and everything. Well, else. Scott... So this is, I think, an example of the tools in the justice system not being what most of us think that they actually are, but yeah. even more so the need to drill down and take a look and see, well, why was this guy, seeing as how we do have the legal tools available... Why were they not being used in this guy's case? This is like the story of the individual who was convicted of uh, was convicted of murder, and then he was. Am I wrong about this? He was let go. Uh, they let him out um, because he had sexual needs, and oh, he was allowed he, to yeah, go on. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then he went to a, a, a sex worker, twenty-three years old, and he murdered her. But they'd let him out, understanding, they said, well, we know you have sexual needs, so you're allowed to go, but you must only be, approach sex workers. So he did, and he killed the sex worker. Yeah, and this happened just a couple legal, of months ago. And it was authorized by a Correctional Service of Canada parole officer who, guess yeah, what, what never told the parole board that he was doing it. Right, and right. what it was that they authorized is actually a crime under the criminal code. That is something that is uh, uh, ongoing in the review of it, and, you know, Correctional Service of Canada and the Parole Board of Canada said, oh, we're going to investigate. So in other words, they're going to investigate themselves. And to their credit, the Justice Committee of the House of Commons said, well, actually, oh, sorry, it's the Public Safety Committee, I believe. Um, we're going to hold hearings ourselves. I've actually been asked to go as a witness. Good. And it, to, again, ask the right questions so as to get the right answers. How did this happen? Why would that kind of a condition be approved? Um, yeah. And who, you know, higher up the uh, the food chain actually knew about this? Cost of why life. did he keep it from the parole board? And when the parole board found out, why didn't they revoke his parole? Because they just rubber stamped it. 
Yeah. Okay, now the committee hearings have been shut down because of COVID-19, but it's a very good example of the need for that yeah. kind of an independent review, not only to make sure that it never happens again, but also to hold pe- officials responsible, which right. is a big part of making sure it doesn't happen again. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.